welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a long, long time friend. Rob, it's got to be well over 30 years. Correct. By now. And I'm talking about Rob Prasmark. Rob is the founder and CEO of 21 Marketing. But I think of him as the foremost mind, great mind, in the space of Olympic and global marketing. Thank you. And Rob has done some of the biggest, most creative, most intelligent, most effective deals that this country's ever seen in the Olympic space and beyond. And Rob, we're going to talk about all of it. Um, but I want to start by going back to the beginning. And I know your first two jobs as a young guy going back to the 70s, initially at NBC. Right. As an account rep. Correct. And then at ABC, where you worked as a VP in sales on the news side. Correct. And I'd love to get your reflections going back to what you remember from that very first day at NBC all those years ago. Uh, well, you know, um, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, <clears throat> you know, from, uh, I'm a kid from Buffalo, New York. So to say that I'm an ordinary guy who's had an opportunity to do some extraordinary, have extraordinary experiences is, a, is an easy way of putting it. Um, my, book, my goal coming out of college was always to get to one of the big networks. You know, uh, uh, I wanted to be Jim Lampley, you know, on the side. And in those days, there were only three networks. It was ABC, CBS, and NBC. And that was it. So my goal was to um, get a job, you know, on, on the production side. Could never break into that. But I also found that I did have an ability of, of enjoying selling airtime. So my first job at NBC when I got to New York was, you know, kind of a, um, kind of like a that girl moment. I mean, it was kind of like, whoa, what am I doing in the big leagues? And you're you're thrust in 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 front of all these massive advertising agencies, trying to sell airtime. So, um, you know, I spent uh, I think four years at ABC Spot Sales, where you have to represent uh, the different um, affiliates that NBC has. And then I always wanted to get to the network, and um, I was able to to uh, <clears throat> get a hold of a, um, a uh, bright guy named Rune Arledge uh, back in the day. And uh, he took a letter from me, and uh, I cold called him and took a letter from me and um, interviewed at ABC News. And, um, you know, it, I, I was there for three or four years. Um, the, the problem that ABC, either I had with ABC or ABC had with me was I was always trying to come up with new ways of selling airtime. And so what we'd end up doing is I'd have to go into these advertising agencies and come up with with different ways of selling airtime, bundling airtime. Uh, there was an upfront back in those days, so I had to, had to deal with that. But um, I did have creative bosses, especially in Rune Arledge, because he was running ABC News at the time. So he was very open to ideas. So we create ABC News business briefs for the first time, and we put them in prime time. And so it was, um, <clears throat> I gained a little bit of a reputation of being a little bit rebellious um, because my immediate bosses just wanted me to go in, take the order, book the order, and try to get more rates out of them, but not come up with these creative uh, thinking. So that was a great experience. And that's kind of when the International Olympic Committee got a hold of me. And I said, you know what? <clears throat> I think my work is done here at ABC. And I think there are a lot of people at ABC that were happy to see me go, walk out the door. So I took, you know, my craziness uh, to the Olympic movement, and that was back in 1985. So, so before we move on, we're going to talk a lot about the Olympics. But before we move on, one of the things I love to do is there are certain names in history who, if guys like you and I don't talk about them, right. get lost. Rune Arledge, an absolute giant, giant in the game. Talk about Rune a little bit. Well, he was, um, <clears throat> he's passed now, but he was really a, a creative genius. And he had a big picture attitude and, and idea. And he really took ABC Sports, created wide world of sports. He was a guy who got ABC involved in the Olympics back in the day. And he had the ear and confidence of Leonard Goldenson, who was then head of ABC. 
Um, and um, he he wanted to do things differently and and big. And so that's what I enjoyed about him. And and remember, at one point, he not only ran sports, ABC Sports, he ran ABC News. I mean, think, and he tried to bring that flair to ABC News when I was there, and I thought he was very successful in it. But uh, you're right. I mean, the generations today, I mean, the, the we call them kids, you and I, um, you ask the average person, you know, today that's 35 or 40, you know, who was Rune Arledge, and they have no idea. But he, he really revolutionized TV sports uh, and uh, television news, and uh, he was and, and still is a legend. Uh, going forward. Uh, it's funny, a couple of people have written books about him and couldn't sell 12 copies, you know, um, um, to a younger generation. But there's so many lessons to be learned from Rune Arledge. Yeah, no question. And uh, I think a lot of the innovations that he started, we still have today. Yeah, I mean, you think about uh, instant replay, okay? Um, he was a guy who, who first um, embraced instant replay in sport. Uh, can you imagine today if we didn't have instant replay? Um, so he pushed his people. Now, remember, I was on the sales side. So he pushed his production people, his editing people um, beyond a- a- anything that was imaginable and really took ABC Sports and ABC News to a different level. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to have our first Olympic Games in a while in Tokyo. And today we all know the Olympics as this huge colossus, right? Billions of dollars in rights fees, hundreds of millions of dollars in sponsorship. I think Toyota is spending between the Olympics and the Paralympics. I heard somewhere as high as $3 billion in terms of what they're spending for 2020. But when you started right after the 84 games, Mm -hmm. the Olympics were barely a business. And my recollection, Olympic Games were bid out seven years in advance. Right. So the 84 games were bid out in 77, one year after Montreal, 76, which was a financial disaster. And as I recall, there were two cities in the world that wanted the 84 games, Los Angeles and Tehran. Tehran, right. The U.S. Olympic Committee had no money. Correct. Blue blazers and patches, volunteers, no money. The city of L.A. said, you can bid, but we don't have any money. Governor Reagan said, you can bid, but we're not going to give you any money. Talk about the 84 games as a transcendent moment. Peter Uberoth, the late Harry Usher, who was a good friend of mine. Um, And and then I want to start talking about your journey in 85 at ISL. Yeah, so um, in 1984, uh, I was still at ABC um, and and the news department, but... um, the 84 games were broadcast by ABC, and um, there was a, a guy by the name, very smart guy by the name of John Lazarus, father of, um, and he ran basically the sales and marketing for the 1984 Olympic Games for ABC. So <clears throat> my first experience was going to those games um, as an account executive from news, but hosting advertisers. And I got to witness firsthand what these games were. And to your point, Matt, they, they come, came off of a disaster in 1976 with, with uh, Montreal. The boycott of 1980 um, was, was absolutely terrible. People in this country thought those games were canceled. They weren't canceled. They, they, were, they were very good um, competitive games for 1980 because they were held in Moscow. Um, at my time at ABC, I'm going backwards a little bit, but I had to sell the Olympic Games for Moscow. Um, and when they were <clears throat> canceled, I mean, at least in America, you know, my job is to go back and give all that money back to these advertisers and make goods and things like that. So that was a big loss. And I think back then, the insurance policy that NBC cashed in on was like $90 million. I mean, that's, that was their loss that they had incorporated. But for 1984, I'm sorry, going back up forward to 1984, what, what Peter Ubroth did was bring a different mentality and ran the Olympics like a business. And, um, you know, he, he said he took the job. He was with this travel. He ran this travel agency called Ask Mr. Foster, 
they recruited him to be head of the games. And, um, you know, I've known Peter for many years. He's, he's a tough customer now, and I can only imagine how tough he was back in, in 82, 83, 84. But he, um, he had leverage on the International Olympic Committee um, because nobody wanted the 1984 Olympic Games. So he built a, a budget based on it, uh, much like they're doing today in LA 2028, using existing facilities. And then he went out, put his sales shoes on, and he petitioned all the major corporations uh, from Coca-Cola to IBM to Mars. I have that entire list and convinced um, those corporations that they were, he, they were gonna get bigger value there are going to be fewer companies, but they're going to have to pay more money than they did in previous Olympic Games. So where the 1980 Games in Lake Placid, I think they had 300 sponsors at you know, um, 10,000 each or 20,000 each, Peter was out there selling stuff in the millions. So the, the first check he got was from Coca-Cola, got him Don Keogh. And uh, there was no pitch. He went to Coca-Cola and said, you are the leading company in America. We need you to step up because it's going to be an embarrassment to America if these games go down in flames. So there's a famous story where Don Keogh and Peter Ubroff sat on a napkin. Don Keogh wrote, I commit $11 million to be your, your first sponsor. Now, Back in those days, $11 million was a lot of money, killer money. So then um, what Peter did was um, he leveraged all that, that exclusiveness, um, and got a lot of other companies going in, uh, always pled poverty, 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 poverty. And so when the ratings did extremely well in 84, because that was the other thing, what, what would happen if, if nobody was going to watch the 84 games because the Soviets weren't there? Um, but Peter did get the Chinese to come. And when the ratings were a bonanza, it kicked in a extra clause from ABC. So it, it, was a, it became a f- super financial success. So I think that the, I think the budget for LA, I could be off, uh, but I think they walked away with close to 300 million in profit that stayed either in the city of Los Angeles or was turned to start the trust with the United States Olympic Committee. But he, Peter wrote the book, um, and uh, he's uh, he's responsible for the model we have today. And the 80 games, which you referred to in Moscow, the irony politically is under President Carter, as I recall, we boycotted those games protesting the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan. You're right. And here we are in 2021, and we're finally getting out of Afghanistan. Right. And the Afghanis have been shooting at our soldiers with the Russian rifles from back then. I mean, it's a huge turn of events, and there's an irony to it. The real losers for the 80 Moscow games were the athletes. Because here they train and train and train all their lives to go and not be given opportunity to compete. Some of them never competed again in, in an Olympic competition. Sure, they're world championships. And that in some cases could be more prestigious. But I think that our um, U.S. Olympians always want to be known as an Olympian and have that opportunity to compete. Um, that's why, again, I'm skipping forward on you, Matt, here. But when um, there's talk in the, in, the, in the media about canceling Tokyo, I mean, that's the last thing. I mean, forget the money. But it's the devastation to the athletes that I think sticks in the head of the Olympic committees, especially the International Olympic Committee. That's why, I, you know, when people say, hey, is Tokyo going to be canceled? I go, there's no way. I mean, um, even if there's nobody in the stands, they're going to let these athletes compete. So I'm not, I'm, so I know I'm skipping ahead on here. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. The athletes do end up as the big losers. You know, by the way, for our audience, this is our first live record since the COVID era. So we get the joyful sounds of sirens in the background once again. It's here, kind of like back here, to the future. Here on 35th and 7th at our offices. So the birth in many respects of the modern day sports marketing business, you trace back to the LA Games and we'll also talk in a little bit about Mark McCormick and the rise of IMG. 
seminal moments in the history of the business, really watershed moments. Let's talk about the first top program, mm -hmm. Horst Dossler and ISL. <clears throat> well, um, the legend has it, it has been said, um, that the IOC was down to like their last $3 million in their, in their bank. And um, um, the International Olympic Committee was um, watching with, with great admiration what Ubroff was doing and, and the, the amounts of money he was raising. And when Ubroth would get a check from Coca-Cola for $11 million, the rights that Coca-Cola received were only good in the U.S. territory. That's the way the Olympic rules work. So um, we think that Coca-Cola thought they were signing for worldwide rights, and they didn't. So when they had to um, want to use the Olympics in L.A. in Australia, they had to deal with the Australian Olympic Committee and write them a check. Then they would have to write Japan a check. And, and they cobbled together, um, I was told, maybe 30 to 35 countries. In those days, there were maybe 150, 160 National Olympic Committees at a cost of 30 plus million dollars. So um, Coca-Cola went to um, then uh, Juan Antonio Samaranch and said, look it, you know, we're a global brand, you're a global brand, um, you know, we'll gladly pay you the $30 million or $20 million, but we don't want the, we don't want to be the ones running around signing up all these National Olympic Committees. You've got to figure out a way. So um, that was a, a new business model. And um, at the time, global marketing was just getting going. <clears throat> I think there was only like four or five global brands back then. One of them was Adidas or Adidas. So Samaraj went to his good friend Horst Osler and said, look it, you're a global brand. You've got factories all over the world. How would you, how would you cobble this together? And so um, Dossler created a company called ISL, which is no longer in, uh, in business. And um, he also had the rights to FIFA and the World Cup. So he knew how to work with individual um, countries uh, in the world. So what, what Dossler did was um, write a check to the International Olympic Committee to secure the, uh, the rights for like nine months um, and uh, were given the opportunity to uh, try to put together um, a global program. Um, and so he would use his own funding to guarantee money to the Germanies of the world and, and uh East and West Germany back then, Japan or whatever, and to buy the rights. So when those rights were assembled, and then you had the Winter Games coming up in 88 Calgary and the, and the summer, summer Games coming up 88 Seoul, <clears throat> when the rights were assembled, they needed somebody to go up to the corporate world. And the majority of, 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 of global companies were here in, in the States. And that's when you know, I got the call and it was uh, good timing for me to leave uh, ABC before they threw me out. And so I said, Olympics, and I've just been to 84 worldwide. You know, what's not the, this has got to be easy. So it wasn't that easy, but, but, uh, so that's how I first got involved in 85. So you become the Magic Johnson, the point guard for the first iteration of what would become the top program, the Olympic program. Correct selling world, worldwide rights to the Olympic marks and terminology, the five rings. Correct. Uh, and I guess that first, as they so called it, quadrennium, that was 88 to 92? Uh, no, the first one was really 85 to 88. Okay. So, and then it went on from, you know... Uh, so post-LA to correct. Seoul and Calgary. Correct. And talk about the reception that you got. You're going out, you're selling something that's new. Talk about that. those early days. You said it was easy, but it wasn't easy, and it could not have been easy. Yeah, we had two immediate buyers. Um, one was Coca-Cola, because it was kind of their idea. Um, and then you had Kodak. Um, I don't know if you all remember the Kodak brand, um, but they were, um, they were big. And they had just been um, really embarrassed in the 1984 games because they balked, and Ubrof sold it to Fujifilm. And Fuji recorded really ate into Kodak share in the States. So 
whatever I think within reason we I asked Kodak for they were that was a done deal. The problem then became well, where else do you go? And the uh, back in the day, um, you know, the behemoth of credit card companies and payment systems was American Express. Um, if you didn't have an American, if you used your Visa or MasterCard, MasterCharge card, and you didn't use an American Express, people would kind of scratch their head and say, "Wow, you, are you having trouble with your credit? You don't have an American Express card." So um, I originally went to American Express and I said, "Who were who were a sponsor of '84 Olympics?" And I said, um, and I got all the way up into the C-suite, uh, Jim Robinson at the time, and um, um, and I said. Uh, to his, him and his people, I said, you're an 84 sponsor. You are a <clears throat> international brand. Um, they're not in all, you know, 200 countries. Um, and you, this should be a no brainer for you. And, um, uh, they you know, kicked around the idea for a long, long time. And, uh, they came to the conclusion back then that the Olympics needed American express more than American Express needed the Olympics, and there may have been some truth to that, you know, uh, because that would have been a that would have been a the third um, leg of the stool, which would have been terrific. Uh, American American Express back then had the brand um, size of like a Google. I mean, if you got American Express involved in something, man, that was big, and so was Coke and Kodak. So I said to them, I said, look at. Um, uh, you know, uh, I need for you to, to do this, and uh, thank you. And, and they said, look, at kid, uh, I was a kid in those days, um, uh, we, we're not going to do this. And I said, well, I'll sell it to somebody else. And they went, they laughed and threw me out the door. Um, and a lot of people throw me out the door. And, and so um, I first went to Diners Club, owned by City back in the day. And, um, you know, when I asked them for $15.5 million, they called security and escorted me to the door and then um i went to master hard that used to be on 7th avenue here in, in manhattan and in those days everything was on on slide projectors and those if you remember the carousels sure. and it was a big decision do you just bring the carousel with you or do you bring the projector and the projector was pretty big and i figured eh, they've got to have a, a projector there. So what I did was when I'm sure enough, they didn't have a projector. So I'm flipping through a brochure with the buyer and we never heard back from them. And the last call um, was to a brand new person at Visa. It was a cold call and what um, may have it. They used BBDO in, in the day. And um, I, she said, look, and I, I, I know about the Olympics pretty well. Her name is Jan Soderstrom. Um, I'm going to be in New York next week and I'll assemble the team from BBDO and, um, you know, come present to us, but just don't come and tell us about the Olympics. Uh, give us ideas on how we could use the Olympics. So um, we came in with three ideas, <clears throat> um, you know, and uh, one was, um, um, you know, putting marks on cards, the five rings. In, in those days, nobody had done that before. So we created also cause-related marketing. Every time you use the Visa card, a donation would be made to the local National Olympic Committee. And the third one was a big one. Um, and they, I, they had just started a campaign that if you go to a restaurant, make sure you bring a big appetite in your Visa card because they don't take no for an answer and they don't take American Express. Well, it's one thing to have a little Rosalie's restaurant in, in Maine. Um, but when we walked in and said, look at you do this, um, you know, if you go to the Olympic games, make sure you bring your visa card cause they don't take American express. Well, that blew the doors off of that. That was the deal. I mean, where can I sign? I think they signed the next day. And so it took a while for that camp campaign to break. Um, but that began the, the reversal of the credit card wars and, uh, because people would say, you know, they thought the whole, the entire city of Calgary didn't take American Express. So, um, and American Express started to see shares drop. And so, um, they, they don't say that anymore. Um, the, um, it, it took a while for American Express met with the International Olympic Committee and said, look, we, get, we made a mistake, didn't buy your sponsor thing. But 
and, and it would be great if Visa can talk about their affiliation with uh, the Olympics, but why are you allowing a company to use the Olympics to denigrate another company? And um, that got through to the IOC. And so you'll see that it kind of faded out and you won't see that campaign anymore. But that kicked in a number of other deals. Uh, you know, we had 3M and we had FedEx um, and uh, Philips Electronics. And uh, we raised a whopping $100 million. And we thought that was over the moon. And now, to your point, you know, Toyota spends three, you know, what's it like? Almost two or three billion on rights, you know? So, um, um, so it's, it's, it's grown in size and it's grown in size and stature because I think the Olympic business model works really well. So you can go back and look at, you know, the last 20, 30 years of business history and you can point to some colossal mistakes, you know, years after uh, Yahoo and Google were both born, if you will. I don't know if you remember this, but Yahoo had a chance to buy Google mm. outright right. for about $500 million mm-hmm. early on, and they passed. Mm. You can argue that that was the worst decision right. of the modern business era. From a marketing vantage point, that decision, was it Warner Canto and Jerry Welsh? Was that the team yeah, at Amex yeah. back then? You can, and who I thought were both great. Jerry, in particular, I thought was a really creative guy. Yeah. But you can argue that from a marketing vantage point, that might have been the worst decision of the last 30, 40 years. And that made Visa's business a global business. It did. It did. Um, <clears throat> to, to create fairness for those characters you mentioned, Jerry and, and Warner, <clears throat> um, they were getting advice and counsel from a third party that was basically telling them that uh, the top program was not going to succeed. Um, it was going to fall apart. And then why do you need to pay for the world when you only wanted six or eight co- uh, countries? So um, a lot of their decision to walk was partly that. Um, the other part was that they never thought as they call them, a ragtag group of banks could ever rally around one central decision. And that they misjudged that. Uh, but um, uh, so it was, who knows if, if Jan had not taken that call that day, you know, there potentially could be no top program, you know, going forward. So um, it's, it's just being the right time, right place, I guess. And ISL not only had the IOC and FIFA, they also had, as I recall, the IAAF. Correct. And FIBA, the International Basketball they did. Association. They did yep. That's quite a group of, quite a quartet of properties. Yeah, and the, the, what happened, um, I mean, they had a corner uh, on the marketplace, the big properties. And um, uh, Horst Dosser died at a young age, I think he was 53. And um, um, the, um, the group, the family that came in to take over, it's a family-run business, um, didn't quite have the same uh, view of the world that Dossler did. And then the, the, the two guys that ran ISL, um, um, and uh, Jurgen Lenz being one and Klaus Hempel being the other, they left and they started this group called Team and then went on to create the Champions League. Okay, so, so the, the new group that came in basically couldn't keep the, the energy going, the relationships going, and they eventually you know, dissolved. And another iconic name in our history of not just sports and entertainment marketing, but in business in general, has his eye on you. And Mark McCormick comes calling. Yeah, I, 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 actually, Sean McManus called me. Uh, he was working at IMG at the time. And um, he's a family friend and said, uh, you know, we keep on reading about all these deals you're doing. And uh, uh, Mark McCormick wants to meet you. And I go... Really? I mean, they were the evil empire. I mean, in my mind, IMG. And uh, so um, I went into, you know, meet Mark and, um, and his number two guy and Bob Kane, great, great guy. And, and um, Mark just kept on shaking his head and he goes, I don't know how you do this. How do you, how do you sell, you know, um, 
a, a brand like the Olympics because you're not getting them advertising time. You're not get, you're gonna, getting any exposure in television. I mean, on the, you know, around the, the boards and stuff like that. You're not getting them, you know, endorsement of athletes. How do you get that money out of them? And he just never understood that model. And we joke about it. And um, he says, look, I don't want to screw you up. And this is after he hired me because he'd always be yelling at other executives. And every time I'd come to see him, he wouldn't ever yell at me. And I go, I don't think you like me, Mark, because you don't yell at me. Because I don't understand what you do, and I don't want to screw it up. So just go back to your desk and keep on doing it. So he was, I always thought he was a, a great guy. A great guy. You know, he never screamed at me. But but um, screamed a lot of other people. But but he, a uh, uh, great guy. And he also um, came to a little um, untimely uh, death of his own. So... Um, I don't know if I have anything to do with it. So let's hope not. So yeah. so the IMG name and Mark McCormick's name, not lost in history, but not nearly as prominent as once were and arguably should be. IMG has now been absorbed into the Endeavor, you know, Colossus post-forcement. Um, but talk about what IMG and Sean, who led TWI, that was an enormous business, ProServe. There were some others that were also very prominent advantage, as I recall, at that time. But Mark was really the first agent. He yeah, was the yeah. first one who, at one point, had both Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas. That's correct. And, and is an absolute seminal figure in the whole rise of sports marketing, athletes' endorsements. Arnold Palmer's early, I remember working for brands like Hertz right. that uh, were legendary. <laughs> Um, and the townhouse they had on 71st Street. Sure. No one had a home court like that. That was very no. special and different. But talk about what Mark and IMG were and what that meant to the whole rise of the genre. Um, what they had is Mark had a business model where he would hire. Uh, it was an entrepreneurial spirit in the company. So <clears throat> he would hire, um, you know, uh, rogue agents like me. And, you know, you had Casey Close, you know, in baseball, and you had Mark Steinberg, you know, in golf. <clears throat> All of us had our own little popcorn stands. Um, and um, we, we were given the tools for success. And um, Mark helped when he felt he could help. And if I needed him to make a call, which I've had once or twice when I needed to get into someplace, he would make the call. But all of us had our own deals, okay? I didn't know what Casey's deal was, and Casey didn't know what my deal was. But we were all entrepreneur, and we were paid for performance. And um, he managed it that way. And I think that is what really, really made IMG different. And when Forsman uh, got it bought it um, from the uh, McCormack family, um, he kind of, once our deals expired... He changed the business model. So no longer were we um, um, uh, rewarded handsomely for success, but we were kind of, that model went out the door and we were given stock options, okay, or um, a, a, a bonus. And so none of us really wanted that because we wanted to, we, we, are, we were entrepreneurs. So... <clears throat> I don't know what the business model is today with IMG Endeavor. Um, I don't run into them much at all anymore. And um, um, but that spirit that Mark built, I think, is is, is missing. Um, you know, or special. Yeah, one of the uh, most memorable deals that I was ever involved with was I was summoned to the IMG townhouse. Remember Bud Stanner? Oh, sure, yeah. And Bud was oh, yeah. Jackie Stewart's agent way mm -hmm. back when in mm -hmm. motorsports and ran IMG's motorsports group. And I was tasked by he and another legend of the business, Ellen Merlo, mm -hmm. who ran all of Philip Morris's sponsorship. Right. And before tobacco sponsorship was outlawed, right. you know, Marlboro Racing, Benson and Hedges, Virginia Slims, which made women's tennis a sport. Sure. You know, you talk to the Chrissy Everts and the Martina Navratilovas. They love Virginia Slims because mm -hmm. there was no money in right. women's tennis before them. And I was tasked with bringing the Marlboro Grand Prix to New York City proper from the Meadowlands parking lot. Right. And uh, got the deal done. And there was a headline. It was March 4th, 1991 on the front page of the New York Times. Look both ways. It's coming. Right. 
we got paid our $100,000 success fee, which for us at the time was an enormous sum right. of money. Ultimately, it unraveled, but we did our job and got paid, and it was an incredible education dealing with IMG. I was, I think, you know, in my late 20s at yeah. that time, and dealing with them and dealing with the Philip Morris Intergovernmental Affairs Group, as mm -hmm. well as the marketing group. Mm -hmm. What an education, but I, my memories of that IMG townhouse on 71st are indelible. Yeah, yeah, and he would he would mark and the company would invest in their own properties. So um, you know he had a war chest and he he was always looking to create events that he could own and control. So you know there was television production involved, there was sponsorship sales, there were tickets. So it was um, um, you know he had a you know dare I say the M word a monopoly going on in many of these things, but he made it very difficult for the other brands like ProServe and, and uh, I mean, those, those were big tennis wars back in those days, yeah. Advantage, um, to actually um, gain any real scale. And, you know, Mark had scale. He had, um, I think we had like 80 offices around the world and, and you had um, 2,300 employees, which really at the end of the day is not that much right um but the notoriety of that brand was huge i think that they only the company he always said the company you know made two billion dollars a year um that was revenue that was re sales revenue but what was the real you know numbers that he so the company was you know under you know half a billion a year in terms of real revenue to the bottom line but he he did that year after year after year after year yeah they were beyond formidable so the IMG thing, as Mark passes and the family sells, disappears, uh, as we knew it. And you hang a shingle and open 21 Marketing now going on 30 years. Yeah, actually, I did that prior to me joining. So I opened it up in, in 1991, and um, I took the Olympics with me and, and a FIFA assignment um, and um, started something with the Smithsonian. Then I got this wacky cold call from a guy by the name of Jerry Jones and uh, of the Dallas Cowboys uh, the Tuesday after he wins um, his second Super Bowl in the role in a row he beat my beloved Buffalo Bills and um, I thought it was uh, a joke I thought um, a guy named Chris Welton was playing a joke on me because we had lost four Super Bowls in a row so uh, when the cold call came in from Jerry um, I, I didn't return it. I just threw out the message. And remember, this is before cell phones and stuff. So um, he called. He was relentless. And he finally, you know, uh, I finally called him back. I still thought it was a joke. But, you know, Jerry Jones' office. And I go, man, somebody's gone way out of their way to get me his private number. Um, and um, he took the call. And, and we, we started a two- or three-year uh, relationship. And, and he... He felt it was unfair that he was responsible for all this revenue to the National Football League, and he was only getting, I think there were 28 teams back in those days, he was getting 128th of all the money, and he wanted he wanted a bigger share. He said, why should I be get, only getting 128th of all the licensing revenue when 40% of everything sold in America is Dallas Cowboy merchandise? He says, I want to create my own program. And then we're going to call it the Texas Stadium Sponsorship Program. And I said, Jerry, you know, you realize when we're successful or if we're successful, the NFL is not going to think this is funny. Okay. And so he goes, I'll take care of the NFL. You know, you just go off and sell. So, so we ended up, the irony, uh, we sold, uh, 21 sold it to American Express was one of our, they let me back in the building. Um, and then um, both of us worked on Pepsi, and on, and he got Nike. So we had three big ones, all flew in the face of NFL sponsors, and um, the, the NFL didn't think it was funny, and so um, they sued. I think Jerry for three hundred or four hundred million. You know, I think Jerry sued them for seven hundred million. You know, so and I'm dragged into this thing. You know. Um, nobody sued me, thank God. And uh, but they they solved their differences. But what Jerry proved, or what we proved, is that um, you know we could sell uh, a sub brand of the Cowboys. So we could not sell 
sponsorship to the Dallas Cowboys because the NFL owned that, that right. But we created Texas Stadium sponsorships. And, you know, I, I enjoyed that time, you know, with him. Um, it, it was a lot of fun. And you mentioned it briefly, but let's not gloss over what you did with what to this day I still think was the smartest thing I've ever seen anybody do in our business. And that's what you created out of thin air with the Smithsonian back in 1996. Yeah, that started um, in about 91, 92. That was another one of the projects that, that um, um, I, I, I started 21 with. And um, they were coming up to their 150th anniversary. And tell, is, tell the story. I've heard it before. But tell the story. You were in an elevator? Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, I had little kids at the time. And, and so I, I was in D.C. and... and uh, I was. I got on the elevator with the strollers and the bottles and all that kind of. It was just myself and these my two kids. And there was a um, um, a plaque on the elevator door that said it was Smithsonian established in 1846. And I'm looking at it and I'm looking at it and I go, they're coming up to their 150th anniversary. I wonder if they know. Okay, so um, Monday I you know got back to the office and cold call a bunch of people and, and I got a meeting with um, um, a great a great guy um, uh, uh, he was head of um, American history and so I said to him I said geez do you know you, you you know you're coming up to your 150th anniversary and and the guy goes uh, son um, I said we may be a lot of things but stupid we're not okay yes we do know but we don't have any plans so um, they hired me to create the plans for the 150th anniversary. And it was a three-legged stool. I created the largest traveling exhibition of the best of stuff. Moon rocks and, and uh, you know, and we didn't have the Hope Diamond, but the, the Hooker Emeralds, uh, space capsules, I mean, um, art. I mean, it was a 100,000 square foot exhibition that, that went around the country. And I remember, because I went to it, you were kind enough to invite me. So I'll remind you of some of the stuff you had. You had Lincoln's hat yes, that he was yes. wearing in the Ford Theater the night he was That's killed. Yeah. You had a Tucker automobile. Correct. You had George Washington's sword. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. you had one of, there are a couple of them, but you had one of the pairs of the ruby slippers. That's correct. That's correct. It was amazing. So it, you create this exhibit, and but that was not all. Now, then, no, what we did is we, um, stealing a page from the Bicentennial, um, which happened in 76, we created Smithsonian Minutes. Uh, we had a, a broadcast partner in CBS. We had three primetime specials that ran. Um, and then we had a big party on the mall that got you know close to a million people over two days um, to celebrate the actual date, which was uh, August 15th. And, um, um, and we sold it to four companies. Uh, um, <laughs> Um, TWA, who's no longer with us, uh, Discover Card, Intel, and uh, MCI. So two out of the four aren't with us anymore. Uh, someone said I got the last money out of TWA uh, ever to, to get out. But those were $10 million packages. And um, so it was those deals that McCormack had seen written about that that's how Sean set me up with Mark and said, okay, okay. So then what now I did is so he, he wanted to buy 21 and um, we couldn't come to a price at all. And uh, so he comes up with this idea of leasing me. So what we did is we worked out a lease program. And so I didn't think I was going to be there more than two years, you know, and I was there 10 years, you know. Uh, so we retired the 21 brand and um, what the mod business model was, we would throw everything into a pot. He was my bank. You know, I had, he had a basement full of lawyers, who, which really helped me out. Um, and, you know, I had their promotion department. But at the end of every year, we would take a little sheet of paper and say, hey, Rob, you brought in this, but it cost us this. And at the end, if there was a profit, we, had a, we, 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 would, uh, uh, we had a revenue share. So I love that model. Um, and uh, when he passed and a forceman bought the company, um, that was a model he, Ted, didn't, Ted didn't like. You know, so, um, um, so that, and then I, that's when I restarted 21. Okay, okay so that's, that pieces yeah. the whole thing together. So now let's jump to the present, Rob. And you 
sort of a culmination of so many things, including what you did with that incredible property you developed in 96 for the Smithsonian. You're doing it again now with America's 250th. Yes. Um, much like my Smithsonian moment, uh, I was somewhere and I go, wow, we're coming up to our 250th anniversary of America. I'm old enough to remember the Bicentennial. And the Bicentennial was a big deal. Sure was. And came at a very difficult time in our, our country. Uh, we had uh, just got out of the Vietnam War. We had Watergate. Um, we had uh, Nixon's resignation. Inflation at like 20 per, 18%. Gas prices through the roof. And so, um, but we as a nation came together to, to celebrate the Bicentennial. So over the last five years I've been working on this project, um, I had to track down um, who was in charge. And um, there was a federal law passed in, in uh, 2016, signed by Obama, uh, that created the Federal Commission to organize our, uh, it's, it's a mouthful, semi-quincentennial is, is the word. Um, that's why we call it America 250, because nobody can pronounce semi-quincentennial on the first try. So, um, you know, 21's been working with uh, the commission and uh, the America 250 Foundation of creating a five-year plan because uh, it's not about one year. It's not about one day because this thing on July 4th marks five years to the actual day. Um, and we have gone through so much as a nation, if you just think back last year, um, that this is not about... Um, Exhibits, maybe like Smithsonian was, uh, that's not about, uh, if, if you're old enough to remember, tall ships or the freedom train. This is more of an a intellectual positioning. So um, we've um, been in the marketplace for um, you know, a couple of years now, and um, uh, we are uh, very happy that we uh, have uh, one, two, or three maybe signed going forward. And we've asked the companies... Not, I mean, money's one thing, um, but we've asked the companies for their in intellectual input on how to organize this. Um, what is important to their consumers that should be important to the commission and the foundation? And all of them have come up with some great, great ideas. Um, so um, uh, the plans are being rolled out. Um, again, we're hopefully we'll have some good publicity on July 4th. Um, it could be something at the White House, could be something we don't know. Um, <clears throat> you know, we, we've got some national PSAs rolling out here shortly. Um, so, um, you know, we recognize visibility is going to be important. But um, again, this is more about engaging every American. Well, we'll have 350 million people living in this country by 2026. It's about engaging every American, uh, not as spectators but as participants in this. <clears throat> and we've got, um, we've got some fun topics. I mean, you could talk about music, go, you know, 250 years of music, um, but you've got some serious topics too, you know? And so how do you engage the entire uh, uh, country? We strive for a more perfect union, which is in our constitution. We will never be perfect, okay? Uh, even for the next 250, our country will never be perfect but we got to continue to improve. So it has been kind of interesting um, representing this property in 2020. Uh, you kind of have, a, you know, the pandemic and you had the civil unrest, and then you had the election. Then, of course, you had the capital thingy. Um, but the companies are still engaged. Um, and um, um, I think this is going to be this is going to be a barn burner. I mean, I call it a Category 7 hurricane that is coming our way. I mean, how to control. We have over 100 federal agencies involved. Um, you know, so you, you got the Postal Service and you've got Department of Treasury and Justice. Uh, um, I, 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 don't, I don't know who on this, one of the Supreme Court justices on the commission. I mean, some big people. So I'm very excited about this project and, and uh, um, um, you know, it, it keeps me up at night. Fantastic. And so, Rob, you've done it at 21. I read somewhere, somewhere's around $3.5 billion yep. worth of deals over a long period of time and created incredible properties and partnerships with companies literally all over the world. You know, you still got a lot ahead of you, but as you look back and reflect, 
any particular characters, you mentioned Jerry Jones earlier, but any particular characters or deals that when you sort of run through the, your own highlight film that you say, I, I really liked that one. That was really, oh, I, that I, was great. I think um, Barnstorming America, I've used this word twice now, sorry, but um, with Mitt Romney, before anybody knew what a Mitt Romney was, um, and when he got the head of Salt Lake City <clears throat> job, remember he was head of the Salt Lake City Organizing Committee, and he 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 knew he was a deal maker, you know. And so he would say, "Rob, I'll go to any meeting if you think it's a live prospect." And <clears throat> he would sit in coach center seat, you know, because that's the image he wanted to uh, project. And um, we uh, we 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 closed some incredible deals um, together. And he would he would sit in front of, in a boardroom and talk to people, or he would sit in a cubicle. In pitch, I mean, it. He he just had that that uh, um, way about him. So that was the two thousand two, yeah, two thousand two Salt Lake City games. Remember right. they, the, the scandal hit, and and um, scandal hit, and then um, everybody. Uh, the scandal was about uh, had Salt Lake bribed people, right? To, Which, by the way, everybody did at that time. They just got caught. <clears throat> yes. You remember my old friend Don Smith? Oh, sure. And Don, one of his clients was, they were bidding for the 94 games that went to Lillehammer and Anchorage mm-hmm. was bidding. Right. And they were buying the IOC members fur coats and yep. boots. And, <clears throat> and so this was, they all got bought off. As by the way, and they got caught ultimately, but Havalange and FIFA, they all got bought. Yeah. You know, uh, the World Cup rights for years yeah. have been bought. Um, but the Salt Lake guys got caught. Yeah, he did. He did. Um, and he keep, I kept on losing. And then somebody said, hey, uh, I forget his name. Um, you know. It was Dave it, Johnson was one of the guys that got yeah, in trouble. And Tom, yeah, like Tom Welch. Tom Welch, yeah. And so um, he just woke up. He says, I don't want to lose again. So he, he, uh, he bought into something that he thought was acceptable behavior. And so they bounced all those. And that's where they... <clears throat> had to bring Mitt in right. to, to write the ship. Um, the other story that um, um, I was representing, um, we were on the other side. So uh, the Beijing Olympic Games were in 2008, but they had already gotten the games. And in 2003, um, they were putting their sponsorship packages out for tender. <clears throat> and so um, we had been hired, I had been hired by Volkswagen China, to um, um, help them secure the rights. So, <clears throat> sorry, um, um, back and forth, back, I'm sorry, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And uh, I picked up uh, um, a, uh, a good communication, a solid communication, that there was a bribe going on, okay? Uh, not between Volkswagen, but the, the, the co- other company we were competing uh, was they were doing something to decision makers inside of the Beijing organizing committee that was going to make the call. And um, because every time we would come in with a bid, you know, the they, the other company would match it, but a little bit more. And, and I'm going, this is too much of a coincidence. You know, so um, I blew the whistle and a scary moment uh, with the IOC. And um, um, uh, Gerhard Heiberg and uh, Hein Verbergen, uh, who Heinz no longer with us, but um, they they were all over that. I mean, within uh, within a day, they were both on airplanes <clears throat> to Beijing, and they snuffed that thing out so fast. And um, so we eventually won the bid. Um, but that was I'll never forget. You know, uh, Verbergen telling me he goes, "How sure are you about this information? <laughs> because we're about to blow up the bridge here." And I go. Go for it. So um, they they stood behind me. The IOC did, and uh, they solved that. And they, I, I think the Beijing Beijing Olympic Games blew me away. I mean, that was the most amazing games I'd ever been to. Fantastic. So now we're about to have our next Summer Games in the 2020 Games in 2021. Mm-hmm. And uh, I still love the Olympics. I know you still love the Olympics. We were talking earlier before we started recording about our old mutual dear friend, Bud Greenspan. Correct. America's foremost sports documentarian. 
and really invented the genre mm -hmm. um, that uh, is so prevalent today. And his films memorializing the Olympic Games are incredible. And, and some of them are still on TV. We've got an interesting time now where we've got more content available to us on more devices than ever before. NBC has an Olympic channel. Uh, they've become a behemoth player in the Olympic Games now, sort of what ABC used to be in a different era. And yet you don't see the same excitement about the games coming in general interest in the sports media, pro sports dominant, collegiate sports dominant. Um, I lament that, that I think the USOC, which has been mired in corruption for years, the national governing bodies in this country, mired in corruption for years, the gymnastics scandals, other scandals. Do you worry about the future of the games in this country? Or do you think that, you know, once that opening ceremonies comes and the torch comes in and gets lit, that it all will just come back? Um, <clears throat> well, this is um, a, a unique year. <clears throat> Sorry, a unique year. And um, um, because you, you usually have marketers that pay a lot of money for the Olympic brands in the marketplace promoting their association with the games. But because of what happened last year with COVID and because of the, the you know, games on, games off, I think marketers have been very reluctant to put big money behind marketing, behind um, Olympians um, or showcasing future Olympians I've only seen one company to date uh, using Olympic branding, which is Toyota, um, but I haven't seen anything. Uh, and um, so this is a unique year. You've got, and we're a month out now. We're a month out, and we, used to, you know, when I used to do this, you know, companies would come in a year out and start promoting, or nine months out and start, and they they would go, they would sit down with NBC and say, who are who are the Olympic stars that we want to feature ahead of time? We sit down with the United States Olympic Committee and say, who's our next, you know, Michael Phelps, make that name up. And um, <clears throat> so, sure, we're going we're gonna to come out of, out of uh, 2020 or 2021, whatever you want to call this, um, and NBC is going to do a great job. They got 7,000 hours and we're consuming it differently. Um, and then we've only got, you know, basically two years, not, what, 18 months? And then we're right back in Beijing 2022. So that Olympic cycle will kick in again. Um, that's my hope. Um, there's a lot of money on the line. Um, think of all the sponsors who had to shelve the marketing and store promotions or internet promotions. Think of the, I feel sorry for the hospitality companies that, um, uh, you know, uh, package trips to the Olympic Games right. and they shelled out, you know, millions and millions of money and poof, it's gone. And now, you know, uh, I've been to 18 consecutive Olympic Games. This would have been my 19th because I'm an international spectator, if you will. I can't go. So um, I think the games will, will come off. Um, they have to come off. Uh, even if they got to put them in my garage, they've got to come off because these athletes, as I said in the beginning, have worked too hard to get here. Uh, and there's the athletes to consider, and there's also the money to consider. Sure. Um, and I, I think I read some uh, in the New York Times the other day that um, you know there's four billion with a B dollars in media rights that have been paid for these games to the International Olympic Committee. That money isn't held by the IOC. That gets distributed to national Olympic committees around the world. So it funds the machine. Um, I think NBC's contribution is 1.5 billion of that. Sponsorship's not that much money anymore. Um, you know, they said 75% of the revenues that come into the IOC are from broadcast, and only 25% or 23% come from sponsor dollars. So um, it it will happen. I, there's always been, as long as I've been involved, um, the challenge of how do you attract the young viewer? How do you attract the next generation of fan? Okay, um, uh, this should not be a 35 plus demo. You know, how do you attract the 12 to 24s? And so, um, NBC, you know, is the machine that will do it here. 
Um, and you know, there's a lot of smart people over there, and I think that's the future. And they've got those games tied up through 2032. So um, maybe I'll still be alive to go to those games. But but uh, um, but I, I, I'm a firm believer that the ship will, will figure it out. Yeah, no, I, I sure hope so because there's a specialness to it. I haven't been to nearly as many games as you have, but I went to Barcelona in '92 yeah. and Lillehammer in '94 and and Vancouver in 2010, yeah. which was uh, Bud Greenspan's last Olympics before he passed. And there's nothing like it. Yeah. Yeah, nothing like it. Well, Rob, this was an absolute joy to talk to you. Thanks so much well, for doing this. Thank you for having me. I enjoy walking down memory lane. I'm good. My, I'm very happy my memory still works. So, um, you know, we get up there, but I love telling the stories. And, and uh, one day I want to publish the book um, and, uh, and get it out there. But uh, the stories continue. Oh, Rob Prasmar, truly a great mind. Thanks, pal. Thank you. 